Hello, dear friends, and welcome to our podcast dedicated to sight reading through the lens of the historically informed performance practice. My name is Darina Blogina. And I'm Sebastian Mitra. And today we have a guest. A special guest. <laughs> Very special. Very special. <laughs> yes. Could you please introduce yourself? Well, I'm Bartholt Keuken, flutist. I participate in this study days on flutes in Romantic period in 19th century. And I have played those flutes quite a lot and other flutes since long time. And I was happy to be invited for this event. And I like very much the, the open spirit of people. Um, as much in the listeners as in the very first place, I think, the ones who play who dare to play, because it's not an evident thing to play even before your teacher, before your teacher's teacher, before specialists, it's streamed or broadcast or whatever it's called. So for some players that can be extra stress, for others they don't care. And characters are different. But I'm very happy to be here. Um, in the morning you read a paper, your paper, and um, it was, I was fascinated by the words that you used, for instance, unwanted refinement mm -hmm. related to the fingerings of the 19th century so-called simple system flute. And my question was, uh, it gives us so many possibilities, this unwanted refinement with a lot of fingering possibilities. What does it lead us to? Well, it leads us to either saying, wow, there is something I have to study and to do. It's not enough to know about it. I can read or write a paper about that, but that's totally useless as long as nobody does it. So the moment for myself I learned about, I read those old treatises, tons of them, you start to realize that it is not just one crazy flutist who did this, but that the kind of top players were using that. And then you say, well, it's not enough knowing it. I have to do it. And then you start studying, I guess you could call it, and trying out on one instrument and then see that the things that work on one instrument don't necessarily work on another one or differently. And then after a while you start to see the system behind it, below it. How do they arrive at the idea that one can take different finger positions for the same note? And when that starts, thing, things become a bit easier. Because now you can invent just as well as they could. So I don't have to learn all 128 fingerings of whoever. Um, but I can just think, okay, there is a C. And the fingering I first played mm, isn't pleasing me. Or is not in, in tune or not in tune with myself, let's say. Maybe with the pitch, but not with the piece. Well, how can I look for another one? And when you have studied the historical ones, at some point you know how to do that. And you search until you find exactly what you want. And there my guideline is always that basically every note I want to play is a note I want, what I would say, to sell to an audience. 
after all, usually they paid their tickets to come to the concert. So there is some kind of selling. So I need to be, or I want to be proud of what I'm selling. But then I have to go all the way. Uh, the other thing is about, because you mentioned before that every note that you play is that you imagine how it should sound and <clears throat> that's your will in this note and my question is well I immediately have so many questions and my brain starts working which is a good sign but uh, um, I was thinking about the, the the side of interpretation and the text that is written on the score in front of you that you see so if you put your interpretation and your will into what you see how do you combine those things the written source the text and your interpretation if there is an interaction between those two things and if there is a compromise sometimes how do you deal with those things i would say in the first place that i don't totally agree with what you say um, there is not my will there is not an interpretation But there is reading a score, seeing it, not playing, seeing it, and imagine how it could sound. But of course that imagination is linked to all you have learned around that piece or that period. I mean, if I have to study a contemporary piece, maybe I'm just too old. No. In the sense that I don't know enough anymore what language that's, that piece wants to speak. I did lots of contemporary stuff until the mid-80s or so. And then I was fluent in that language. So then I felt entitled to do it. Now it, foot, it would feel like speaking a language that I don't know well enough. Or only phonetically speaking some Korean or so. Somebody could probably teach me a sentence in Korean, yes? But I still wouldn't know what it means. Or why there is an accent here and the lengthening there and the pitch difference there. I can learn it, but I would feel strongly ashamed if I would sing in a language that I can't speak. And this is the same when reading a score. I have to learn the language of that score, of that composer, of that period, of that instrument. And out of all those things, mixed with literature and art and architecture and gardening and whatever you can imagine, uh, slowly there is an image crawling out of, out of nowhere, basically. And... I would never call that an interpretation. It's not something I put on top of a score. It's something that has to come out of the score. But it will only come out if I'm open enough to let me, uh, let's say, let myself be surprised by what comes. So it's much more a kind of, well, you should become good friends with the score. And your friend will tell you, come on, guy, this needs to go otherwise. Oh, I need this. I need that. Why don't you, why don't you play that? So it's all the, much more the questions than the answers. 
And I feel that all too often musicians have the idea, what can I do with the piece? And I think it's the totally wrong question. The question is, what does the piece ask from me? But of course, if I'm too much proud of myself, I don't let the piece anything, I ask anything from me. I just play my thing. And there I think we are wrong in whatever period. Do you think it's linked to this um, question of losing refinement or, or losing this approach in this Not search? necessarily. I hear the same in modern violin playing or in old violin playing. It's a character problem. It's putting yourself in front of the music stand or not. And there are moments, I think, of the situation of a cadenza in a concerto. Maybe that's a moment where the performer puts himself in front of the music stand, but then goes back. Yeah? But if as a performer I constantly stand before the score, I feel I'm doing something that's not, that's not fine. How do you find this inner radar in yourself? I was always fascinated after you're listening to your masterclasses or lectures. You have so much curiosity about every note. How do you, because you're a great researcher and scientist. Well, I'm not. In, I'm in just music. a stupid musician. But I ask myself and others tons of questions. And maybe another thing is that I don't take myself too seriously. Seriously enough, because when you play, you have to be convinced of what you're doing. But at the same time, there are all the questions there. How to open the eyes and see them, and ears, and soul. Heart in the first place. And that's a question, for me, question never starts with the instrument. The question starts with the music I see in front of me. And I know that any notation is an approximation of what the composer thought. It's, I would say, it's, I can't conceive that music would consist only of whole notes, half notes, quarter notes, eighth notes, sixteenth, thirty-second, etc., and a couple of triplets. Why not twenty-seventh? Or thirteen and a half? Yeah? So, They try to do their best in writing. And then I, th I feel like I should learn to decode more or less what they have written as far as I can understand it. C could you speak a bit about where that came from, actually, and when, when this curiosity or when this way of questioning started for you? I'm afraid I was born like that. <laughs> <laughs> that there is, I, as long as I remember... I have been asking questions, not only to my parents or my brothers, but to myself in the first place. Or I always had this feeling that when I was doing something, at the same time, a little devil maybe, or angel, depending, well, maybe, maybe devil, was asking me, do you really mean that? So that always gave me a kind of double direction. Out and in. And I think that has been there since the very beginning. And I didn't, I don't think I lost it. And I don't really want to lose it. Yes, I think it's a valuable... For me yeah. it is. It's the way also was 
um, to laugh about yourself, to do something with all your conviction and then see it and say, come on, that was pretty stupid. And that's not bad. Also, uh, before in the morning, you mentioned um, there was a table of fingerings and you mentioned something that this fingering is in the text, but there were others that are not written in this table. So, and I was curious about all this information that was not shown in the treatises or depicted or that we know about it for sure. Um, how can we research that amount of information that is kind of hidden behind? Well, that was a very easy one because that was for the Quantz treatise, for the Baroque flute, a certain fingering that he gives in his fingering chart. It's already quite an exception if modern of today's Baroque flutists ever look at those fingering charts. Usually they say, well, I'm a flutist, I know that. Yeah. But then... Quantz in his fingering chart gives one note. If you use exactly his fingering, it's really way too sharp. And that had been, yeah, disturbing me, of course. But then Quantz is such a methodical mind, he writes a whole chapter of comments to his fingering chart in text form. Note number one, on many flutes it's a bit low, you better try to lift it. Uh, note number three, well, watch out, since the hole is pretty small, you can't blow too much. And in fact, very detailed information, which of course nobody ever reads, because again, we, th we think, I'm a flutist, I know this. And in that section, he writes about that one note that was way too sharp, Well, this is the fingering, but in order to bring it to the right pitch, you have to do this or this. So it's not, even, not difficult to find. It's just reading what's there. And I think that is maybe because it became so easy now to read. I mean, every treatise is for free on the internet. Before, if you wanted to buy a facsimile edition, of Quants, of Tromlets, of Turk, or whatever. You had to pay quite a lot. And you had to wait two months before you got it. So there was fewer information available. It was more difficult to get it. But maybe, maybe people read it more often. Now I have the feeling that so much is available And there are summer classes and courses and conservatories and academies and whatever. You have had so much information delivered to you, whether you want it or not, that you don't, um, you don't control anymore the information which has been delivered. I was waiting after the lecture I gave this morning and the master class this afternoon. Uh, I was waiting for attacks. People saying, yes, but I didn't hear them, which means they believe me. And that's probably the worst one can, one can do with a teacher, is believe him or her. I mean, you can say, yes, thank you for telling me, and then go and check for yourself. And next week, come with a list of questions. And some teachers will 
be a bit angry and don't want to see you anymore. And others will be relieved that there can be kind of discussion that students can bring in new, well, not new, but other ways of reading the same text, etc. And then it becomes fun. But maybe the system is built that way that we are used to believe our teachers and just listen to what they are saying. And it's building up into this huge oral tradition that one teacher said to his student, their student, I don't know. And then it's been going like this for years and nobody checked the source, you know. I think maybe it is a problem. How do you see the... A system of education in well, you know, it's it's strange. Let's say, of course, our generation, we are not pioneers. I mean, started long time before us, but in the 60s, 70s, early music with capital letter cap, early music, big E, big M, became fashionable somehow, and. One of the things typical for that period, late 60s, 70s, was you attack authority. You don't want to believe teachers. You don't want a conductor anymore who pretends to know. And look where we are now. All those people who didn't want to believe teachers and who didn't want to see a conductor before them, what are they doing? Teaching and conducting. <laughs> Yeah. So that, if I think of that, I have a little smile to myself because I'm doing just the same. But I try at least to have the decency to put myself into question and colleagues and students and teachers. There was, when I was a student, it was normal that your teacher would tell you how to play a piece. And you just did it. Often he didn't even tell you He just took up the instrument and played it. No explanation how to do. You heard it. Now you go home and practice until you can do it. And that's it. Which is another way of teaching, which certainly was modeled on the oral tradition uh, for in cultures where music was not transmitted by the eye, which is a weird thing on itself, but by the ear. I mean, I have friends who had stayed for a long time in India learning to play those Indian flutes. And I say just the same, there are 12 students sitting there and one master, and he played something, and all 12, one after the other, has to play the same. And he keeps saying, no, next one. So this is not a dead tra uh, tradition. I don't, I don't say it's a bad one. But with the spirit of the late 60s, it became normal, healthy, to ask the question, I know you play this beautifully well, but why are you doing it? And that was totally new for me. My modern flute teacher, you simply didn't talk to him. And then I got another one to whom you could talk and whom you could ask questions and who would ask you questions. So the connection became more equal between the student yes. and the teacher. That was not the important thing. It was just that um, people found it normal that you don't only rely on authority. 
But it was the same in education, wasn't it? The 70s, late 60s, 70s, that was the moment you are too young for that. But uh, it's forbidden to forbid and that kind of things. Yes. Yeah, flower power, all that kind right. of stuff. That was a generation. It's a great point of view to put it into this historical perspective because somehow we think of early music, but we don't include this into the context of... Exactly. It was just society in a certain way. And, well, I would say society has turned away from flower power. <laughs> yes, a little bit. And I think music education has turned away. In the beginning, in the, let's say, 60s, 60s, 70s, if a performer in early music um, was very personal and put his or her own ego in front he would be attacked because they well that that can't be right because it's again appealing to the ego to the authority but then a next generation has learned how to play the recorder or whichever instrument and they believe that their teacher knew how to do it so they learn it but they didn't question and then their students Well, they get the kind of second-hand knowledge. And so we have a kind of what they call this morning a modern historical performance practice, mm -hmm. which I was calling something like accepted fake news. <laughs> oh my God, yes, that's true, actually, yeah. So there's a certain standardization and canonization of yes, the Yes, and also, of course, I see there is a big uh, influence from the modern music culture, pop culture, whatever, rock, pop, whatever you want to call it, uh, where the ego is very much cultivated. And I know so many people who would actually prefer to be on stage in that setting rather than playing the oboe. Mm -hmm. So there are, I know people who are jealous of that star culture. And then they try to behave as if they are such a star. And then the decor becomes important. Let's say that the wrapping of the music becomes too important. And then you need three theorbos on stage for a simple violin sonata. Come on, but it looks so nice, you know, wow. Yeah? So we, today we go watch a concert, but not listen. Last, last time, it becomes a show. Last time I went to the opera in Brussels, it's already 20 years ago, probably. They played Peleas de Bussy, which is my favorite opera anyway. And it was with very good soloists. So I was so happy. But 90% of the time, I have sat with my eyes closed and my hand in, in front of my eyes because I couldn't stand what I saw. It had nothing to do with the music and with the, with the argument. Yeah. And that is what I feel. At some moment, the wrapping of the music is taking overhand. And then I say, no, thank you. Yes, but it can be also individual that, like, for instance, for you, it does not go, the wrapping does not go along with the music. But maybe there are some people that can obviously because they stage those things that they perceive it as something cool. Yeah, there are other values 
And I think those are not values that impress me very much. They don't touch me at all. Or if they touch, it's rather by uh, getting uneasy with them because that field it's, doesn't add anything to the music. So why would I do it? I've actually spoken to your brother Sigiswald about this and also with his daughter Marie. And I think they're of the same opinion in terms of staging. Um, in terms of staging, and they're very into historical staging, of course. I was wondering if they're... I mean, you're very closely connected, well, of course. Are there things that you're not, that you don't agree on? Like, very, very strongly, but ground-based. Do you have brother? I don't, so that's... I do, I do have a brother. Do you always older. agree? No. Even now, with the war situation, I think I actually, I cannot talk to my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then something I would say about family things. Did you always do what your mother told you to oh, do? Oh, no. Oh, no. I should not do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's about how I feel about teachers. <laughs> yeah. So, of course, there are things we do differently. And with our third musician brother, it's still different. And... Well, we play another instrument, and in a certain way you play another. You speak another language linked to the instrument and linked to your own character. And otherwise, of course, you know each other so well as brothers that you don't need many words. Or if you need many words, it's a bad sign. <laughs> and then usually when there were those discussions, uh, at some point one said, well, let's stop and let's play. And then we started playing and we found um, we didn't need to continue arguing. Um, but that's a question also of confidence in each other. Uh, something that I've often heard people seeing the three of us play together, they say, you never look at each other when you play. I said, but why would we? We have ears. And you kind of feel when the right moment is there. Boom. Sometimes I have the same feeling when my colleagues in different ensembles, they demand the eye contact. And sometimes I feel at this moment it's not needed. I, I don't have anything against the eye contact or on stage. I think it looks also nice. But sometimes I feel like it's coming to this point when people are trying to be as active as possible and maybe doesn't not really go... Yeah, along with the music or with the mood. With, totally with the agree. moment, I would say. Yes. It's an, an experiment I have often done with students when they play even a duo for two flutes. And looking at each other and not being together. Yes. And then I put one in one corner of the room and the other in the other corner with their backs to each other that they couldn't see. And I said, now there is no loud breathing in. <laughs> but you are going to start together. And they say first, no, that's not possible. I say, well, try. And at the latest, at the third time, it was palm together. Because they feel, when the moment is there, the ripe apple falls. And, and that was so much more together than they could ever have had, through the, again, through the wrong medium, through the eye. I think the eye is wrong for the music just I would say as degree Celsius is wrong for measuring a distance <laughs> that is true yeah? it's about the same for me it's not the right medium yes 
my question is um, maybe my last question. Um, what does the definition of a real musician include for you? That is on purpose. That question. But it's a nice question. And I would say it has to do with contact. Um, my first idea was I was looking at that painting or photograph behind you and imagining it's a painting. And I would say as long as a painting is not shared with a viewer, consumer, one could almost say, it doesn't exist. A book or a nice poem that you have written, that it's in the drawer of your, in your office. I would say it exists the moment it takes contact with, let's say, the consumer. Yeah? That's why I can read a book 20 times, because each time I will be somebody else. I will be a day older or a year older. Yeah? And I think with music it's about the same. Music for me doesn't exist until you hear it, not until I play it. So for me, a true musician is somebody who can make that contact between, let's say, most of the time a dead composer <laughs> and a living audience. Because most of the people in the audience can't read music. I don't listen often to music because I can read it. And then I don't need to care about, I don't like this soprano voice. Or why does the cellist play out of tune, etc. It's perfect. I don't have to close my eyes because I hate the staging of the opera. Yeah. But that's kind of private thing. But for me, music is contact. It's a language. And you are Russian, are you? Yes. yes. If you would speak Russian to me, I would not understand a lot. I might understand not the words, but the mood behind it, if I listen as a musician. But still, so much of the message will be lost. Yeah? Yeah. And I think that's exactly where a musician is necessary, just to make that message understandable or ah, accessible to the listener. Is that an answer to your question? That's a very good answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. That's fantastic. Those are things that are so difficult to talk about.